I would say I was really heavy into stupidity. Uh, I was bathing in it, um, and I don't bathe often. But I, I really knew nothing. Like I honestly, when I decided to run the marathon, I honestly had to look up how long is a marathon. I did not know it was twenty six point two miles. Mm. So you can see, see where I was starting from. And then of course you're desperate for knowledge, and and I was doing it all by myself. I didn't have a partner or running team or anything like that. So I just everything that happened to me seemed shocking um, and odd, and I had to go to the internet to see if this is a common occurrence. Um, and I never did find, and I it might be out there, I don't know of it, but it, I never did find a one concise source that was able to sort of speak to the idiot novice like myself and say, okay, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. Don't be freaked out if your toenails fall off. Right. Uh, stuff like that. So yeah, I was all over the internet looking for something and then ultimately perhaps jumping ahead. But I think that's why I wrote the book is trying to help another idiot out there somewhere um, and give them all this information in sort of a fun way. Hooray Run Podcast, Episode 9. This is going to be fun. Joel H. Cohen, writer and producer for The Simpsons and author of How to Lose a Marathon. He joins the podcast, a two-time Emmy winner and winner of three Writers Guild Awards, How to Lose a Marathon, a starter's guide to finishing in 26.2 chapters. It's Cohen's first book, released in April. It reveals the author's transformation from an out-of-shape slob to the slightly out-of-shape slob who finished the 2013 New York City Marathon. It's full of self-deprecating humor and museum-worthy stick drawings. You gotta read this page, Turner. Cohen calls it a book about running he wishes he could have read as a person who absolutely, wholeheartedly knew nothing, was brand new to this pursuit of running. Amid the humor, there's inspiration. Joel makes it clear that if he can tackle 26.2, you can. We talk his book, The Simpsons, Oprah's role in his 2013 NYC marathon, if he reads his online book reviews, much more. Joel H. Cohen, I'm James Rogers. Before we get to the conversation... My friend Mikey, a.k.a. Meeks Palmer on SoundCloud. Mikey, you gotta drop that beat for us. Joining me on the line now... He's a writer and producer for The Simpsons. He's the author of How to Lose a Marathon, A Starter's Guide to Finishing in 26.2 Chapters. He calls himself a lazy lump with more chins than trophies. And he finished 26,782nd in the 2013 New York City Marathon. Chunky and curious, pudgy, slow and lazy, Joel H. Cohen, thank you for joining Hooray Run Podcast. Oh, wow. Thank you. What an insulting introduction. <laughs> You're coming to, uh, from L.A. right now. It's just past 6 a.m. there. Did you get a run in this morning or no? I figure if you get up and do a podcast, that is the same as a run. So I'm going to count this as like five miles or something. That's the workout for today, isn't it? <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> How to Lose a Marathon. What a read it is. And you've been writing for The Simpsons for 17 years now. 
That is correct. Yes, yeah, seventeen. That correct. And then yeah. about year thirteen, you kind of got this itch to run, and it gradually turned into how crazy am I? I'm going to try to tackle twenty six point two. I understand that this intriguing point with running came when, after you read Christopher McDougall's book Born to Run. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I like probably most people who've read it uh, loved it. Uh, and uh, a lot of people took a lot of different stuff away from reading that book. Uh, you know, people talked about barefoot running, people talked about, uh, you know, the science of barefoot running or all, all other stuff he talked about. To me, the thing I took away was that there are people out there that actually enjoy running, which I couldn't believe. Uh, so I felt like I was missing out on something by not doing it. Uh, and I tried it. Uh, I don't know that I ever got to enjoy it, but uh, it started me on this path that led to the marathon. You are Canadian, and yes. at one point, you did think you may have potential with running early on in your life when you were in a class of six at this Yiddish language school in Calgary? Yes, I'm sure many people listening are familiar with the Yiddish language school in Calgary. Uh, yeah, there's only six people in my class, four boys and two girls, and I was amongst the, the six, best, six best athletes in my class. Uh, but actually, I really was legitimately the fastest runner in my class, uh, which doesn't say much. But it also, if I wasn't the second fastest, I was the fastest. So I thought I actually was fast. Uh, and then I went to a big public junior high school or middle school, and I realized I am not fast at all. Reality hits you there. Hard, hard, hard. <laughs> you say you love sports as much as you hate to exercise. I'm sure, and we know from reading the book, just a massive learning curve when you got into this sport of running um, around 2013, the year you ran New York City. Uh, there's many points I'd like to go through. I know we don't have sure. three hours, but we'll, uh, we'll just talk about initially that first mile run you describe in the book when you, you set out early in the morning, you put one foot in front of the other, and then it was just exhaustion after what you said, a 11 or 12 minute mile, or was it a little slower than that? Oh my God, that you're being generous. That, you might've misread it. Go back. It was probably an hour and a half. Um, yeah, no, I just, like I said, I'd never really ran and I'm like, all right, I'll try this. And, and I just, you know, put the shoes on one of my driveway early morning and took off. And I probably went a mile before like vultures started circling and my lungs were, I was just coughing up dust and other body, body organs and just collapsed in a, in a writhing heap. Um, and I obviously was incredibly out of shape and didn't even understand how uh, tiring it could be, especially if you're incredibly out of shape. So that was, it. that was the first run. And from there, I, I, I'm proud to say I got a little bit better than that. Um, so I improved a little after that. I'm sure your wife was proud of you after that first mile run. Can we she say she was? was she like came with a piece of chalk and outlined my body for the coroner. Uh, she was proud of that, but uh, you know, she she eventually, of course, became proud that I finished the marathon. But the first run, no one could be proud of. At what point in this running did you start considering a marathon? I mean, you started out with a mile, then you went to a mile and a quarter, and just incrementally got longer with the runs. At what point in this training, this beginning, did you think I'm going to try to get after twenty six point two? Well, like, honestly, I didn't even consider it for a while. I just started, okay, I, I became a little competitive with myself and I did that beautiful mile I just described. And then, you know, as I recovered and didn't die, I was like, well, maybe I can do a mile and a quarter or maybe I can do that mile a little faster. So, you know, ne the next day I, I went out and did that. And I actually saw, of course, 
a little progression because how could I have gone backwards? And I got better and faster. And then I think I did a 5K just because I'd never, of course, done an organized race before. And then once I did that and sort of experienced what that was like running with other people and uh, having aid stations, et cetera, then I'm like, all right, I wonder if I can actually stretch this, push this all the way to a marathon. And you finished that Santa Monica Classic 5K in under 29 minutes, 2856, 267th place out of 945, so better than middle of the road. And then pretty soon after that, you you became hooked on these numbers and pace and what is my potential. And we're going to get into that too on how you became hooked on those numbers. But also there's a great anecdote in the book with the Santa Monica 5K where right when the gun went off, I understand you took off right away even though you were in a different, in a farther back corral or farther back in the crowd and you got some odd looks. Well, again, I, and I, I, anybody that's never run an organized race before, I would think would do the same thing. You hear the gun go off, you take off. The problem is in fr- between me and the starting line was a lot of people who had been in a race before <laughs> and they knew that nothing matters until you actually step over the time strip where your time begins. So I'm like smashing into people like some idiotic pinball uh, trying to get get going. And, and I think someone maybe told me or I just realized like you, you have like, you know, a quarter of a mile to go in this thick crowd of people before any of this counts. Like you can't <laughs> run through a through a parade. So I eventually just slowed down and, and learned that uh, you, you start running when you cross the time strip, not when the gun goes off because <laughs> it does not mean anything. So that, that was uh, that's a tip I'd like to share with other idiots out there. You quickly learn the difference between clock time and chip time. Exactly, very quickly. I only had to hit a thousand people before I learned it. So it is true that after this 5K, you became hooked on these these numbers and self improvement and achieving a goal. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, once you have an official time and uh, for for a sort of sanctioned distance, I, I hate to use the word sanctioned, but I did. Uh, yeah, then you start thinking, okay, I just ran a in this case, I think it's less than a 10 minute mile, and I was like, wow, that I wonder if I can keep that up, and how long can I keep that up? And I found that I couldn't keep that up, but um, at least it, it started me on this path of like, well, if I run 10 miles, can I can I maintain a 10-minute mile or an 11-minute mile or what have you? Um, yeah, and then once you start getting into that math and that type of uh, arguing with yourself, uh, marathon is, I think, where you're going to end up. And during this build-up to the marathon, now transitioning into that training, that four-month block, mm-hmm. you were definitely can I say heavy into like online running forums and trying to find a book that maybe would cater to what you would maybe say is a non-present skill set, but more of your running ability. Were you looking for some document, some book that would have uh, resonated with you in this buildup? I would say I was really heavy into stupidity. Uh, I was bathing in it um, and I don't bathe often, but I, I really knew nothing. Like I honestly, when I decided to run the marathon, I honestly had to look up how long is a marathon. I did not know it was 26.2 miles. Mm. So you can see where I was starting from. And then, of course, you're desperate for knowledge. And, and I was doing it all by myself. I didn't have a partner or running team or anything like that. So I just, everything that happened to me seemed shocking um, and odd. And I had to go to the internet to see if this is a common occurrence. Um, and I never did find, and I it might be out there, I don't know of it, but it, I never did find a one concise source that was able to sort of 
speak to the idiot novice like myself and say, okay, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. Don't mm-hmm. be freaked out if your toenails fall off, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. So yeah, I was all over the internet looking for something and then ultimately perhaps jumping ahead. But I think that's why I wrote the book is trying to help another idiot out there somewhere um, and give them all this information in sort of a fun way. Sure. It's how to lose a marathon. And you say early on in the book, I decided to write the book about running. I wish I could have read. And then you say also a lot of books about people doing unusual things are nothing more than thinly veiled bragging with the author crowing, look what I did. And you really wanted this book to be the opposite of that. And that's what you totally capture in this self-deprecating tone throughout the book, just to say, if I can do it, you, the reader, can absolutely run 26.2. And I continue to believe that's true. If it, it, when I see myself do anything successfully, I'm super impressed. Uh, <laughs> even wake up this morning, I was. I would love to know how that happened. You made but, it. Uh, I made it, baby. So yeah, I, I encourage anyone that is even contemplating this in the slightest, you can absolutely do this. Uh, look at me, and you are far superior to me. You can do this. When did you start using the RunKeeper app for your training? You talk about RunKeeper quite a bit. I know you wrote, I think, a blog post for their website and started this uh, How to Lose a Marathon Challenge through RunKeeper. Uh, what made you choose the app? And uh, is that what you read online somewhere, like go through a training program via an app? Uh, again, I'll back up to say <laughs> I am the lowest level of, of intelligence to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, a guy I work with, another writer on The Simpsons, I'll give give him a shout out. He'll love it, Matt Selman. Yeah. Uh, I started running a little bit and he just told me, oh, you know, have you ever heard of this app called RunKeeper? And of course, my answer was no. Um, and he told me, he said, it's a great way to track your distance because of course, how, how it's very hard to know how far you've run without an app. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I did it. I, and then as I got more and more into it, I got the elite level, which is not expensive, but starts really be able to analyze your splits and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and I really also discovered that there was the marathon training program in the app, which again, I had no idea of and no even thought that there was marathon training program. So I literally just followed the program on RunKeeper um, and it got me through the marathon. And then once, uh, you know, I, I had the book, uh, I believe I reached out to them and just said, hey, you know, you guys were very key in me doing this. And they uh, had, I guess, heard of the book or read the book. And mm-hmm. they just said, well, you know, if we can do something together, let's do it. So that led to me doing some blog posts. And they ran a, a fun challenge. And they actually ended up giving away, I think, about 10,000 books as well. So wow. it worked out really well. So it was good. Awesome. Did you wear a GPS watch or did you use your phone as GPS? I came to learn, uh, amongst the 5,000 things I learned, yeah. that my phone battery would not last when I was using GPS for a long run. So I did end up buying a GPS watch, the brand of which I don't remember and I'm not being paid for to say, so I won't mention. But uh, yeah, so I had to buy a GPS watch just to kind of, uh, for longer runs, 10 miles plus, to kind of know how far and fast I was going. Do you remember your first double-digit mileage run, 10 plus? I I don't remember it. I'm sure I woke up in a hospital. I can't remember. Uh, I don't know where I ran. I you know you, once once you get deep in the program, you know every week you're running uh, over 10 miles and eventually up to 20 miles. Um, so I, I, the thing I really remember from those runs is trying to figure out where to run because again, like how far is 12 miles? How far is 16 miles? It's hard to even know until you start getting out and doing it. So. I would always spend a lot of time mid-run and sometimes pre-run, like 
all right, I'm going to go down here. I'm going to turn there. I'll go up to this place and then come back. So that's what I remember more than the specific runs. Sure. And you were usually plugged in, always plugged in on these runs with audiobooks, podcasts to, you say, keep your brain off the actual movement of running? Yeah. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, I do not really enjoy running. And uh, I, I think if my brain ever caught way into the fact that my legs were running, there'd be like some sort of internal civil war. Um, I would bet on the brain, by the way. But uh, so I just had to distract myself totally. So I would I would just pound uh, audiobooks and podcasts like this one, just anything I could do just to sort of keep my mind occupied so I could just keep running. Because uh, if I th- really started to think about it, I would get bored uh, and that would not be a good thing. You did not wear headphones during NYC Marathon, though, right? Yeah, again, like this is all stuff I didn't know. I think I can't even tell you for certain. There might have been a rule the year previous that people weren't allowed to wear headphones because they wanted people to be able to hear for safety and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think they relaxed that rule the year I did it. But still, it was my first marathon. And um, as you know, I think just the experience and the audible um, energy and excitement is, is worth listening to. So I did not. So that was a long time alone with myself, which no one enjoys. As you progress in the training and you figure out, like pace was also a a big learning curve for you too. Just like what in the world can I run for a marathon distance? And you, you start saying that you, you find inspiration from celebrities and you're online looking at what have uh, some of these well-known celebrities run marathons in? And you, you look up Will Ferrell, you look up Katie Holmes, Al Roker, and then those are either too fast or too slow for what you intended to run or what you thought you could run New York City in. And then you run across <laughs> Oprah Winfrey. And now we get this phenomenon of the Oprah line. Tell us what that Oprah line is. Yes. Uh, I, as I say in the book, there's no better way to conduct your life than mirror the behavior of a celebrity. Um, they've, they've only done wonderful things. Um, so yeah, I, exactly. As you said, I, I just, I didn't know what was a good in quotes time for a marathon and I didn't know what my pace would be. But as I sort of settled into this 10 minute mile, I was like, who can I pit myself against in my head that has run about a 10 minute mile? It turns out to be Oprah is just over a 10 minute mile. She ran, I think the Marine Corps marathon a lot, previous to me in about four hours and 30 minutes which is a little bit more than 10 minutes a mile. So I decided I will be in an imaginary feud with Oprah. She will know nothing about it, but all the same, it's on Oprah. And that was it. And I just, that, that is actually, I learned described as the Oprah line, four hours and 30 minutes. Um, And that's what I set myself against. And uh, there probably are other lines, like a Will Ferrell line. I, I could never even come close to, but it was me versus Oprah the whole time. When I saw your finishing time, I I was kind of intrigued. I was going to ask, I said, I'm going to ask Joel if he has any inclination to try to tackle Will Ferrell's sub four, because as we get to the end of the book in that final chapter where you go, uh, maybe not the final, final chapter, but you go mile by mile, you don't cover every mile, but we, uh, we get to the point where I'm going to say it now, you ran 426.03, you... Take that, Oprah. Yeah, you defeat Oprah. You still yeah, haven't heard any word of congratulations or anything from her end or her team. I imagine one day we'll see each other and she'll just pretend she didn't see me and avert her eyes because she knows and I know what happened. <laughs> I thought, I mean, if he tries to get Will Ferrell, that's another 30 minutes. But in a marathon, and this may seem outrageous to you, but a little 
faster than one minute per mile, you got to take off your time to get that sub four and then try to approach Will's time. Did that ever cross your mind? I'm sure it didn't. I'm sure you were just thrilled to be crossing the line and uh, in a state of exhaust exhaustion, maybe. But uh, I was thinking Joel might try to he might try to get Will's time now that he ran four twenty six in his debut. <laughs> Well, I sort of, the very last epilogue of the book is what happened, which is I went and tried the Chicago Marathon, which I had heard is a very flat course and consequently a very fast course. Um, and I, in, at, if you'd asked me before the start of that race, I was gunning for four. Little did I know, I guess okay. that was Will Ferrell, but I was like, can I crack four? And uh, spoiler alert, I cracked a lot of things. Four was not among them. <laughs> did you do similar training for that 2014 Chicago Pretty much. I mean, it, again, stupidly, I, I just thought I'm kind of sort of kind of in shape from New York and I could wait and then rebuild or I could just kind of try to maintain. And I would say I tried to maintain um, with not such great results, but I basically just tried to hang on to whatever level of fitness I had and then hope that the flatter course would let me go faster. Yeah, and that, did, that race was that. about 11 months after New York City. Yeah, and some people say don't do two marathons in the same year, and uh, I present myself maybe as true as proof of that. In the in the book, you give us uh, six tidbits, six gems you call them of of running wisdom or wisdom you learned in this process of marathon training in this four month buildup. And I want to ask you: Do you have one of the six that resonates most with you? Did you did you rank them in order of importance? Uh, I don't think so. The one that I always, and it sounds elementary, maybe to people listening, but it was not to me, is just this idea of bad runs. I mean, you, you'll run an eight mile run and feel great and be under your normal pace and it'll just be a breeze. Um, and then you'll, the next day, try to run a four mile run and it'll be a struggle and you'll feel like you're, you know, running uphill, which you might be, but it's just, you're just very tough. And, and I, it's like, why could I run eight miles the day before? And now I'm running four miles with such a challenge. And it's just like this mysterious bad run, which I, again, thanks to the internet, I learned that happens even to like the best of the best athletes. Um, and it probably happens not just in running, but in everyone's, you know, uh, facet of life where they just, sometimes you have an off day and, uh, to understand that, to appreciate that. And then to be able to kind of blow that off and move past it. I thought that was a really good thing for me to learn because, uh, you know, I had like a hundred bad runs and two good ones. Uh, no, but I mean, you're, there's, they're out there and you're going to have a bad run and don't get hung up on it. Just go the next day and you'll be surprised that you're kind of back on track. And if mysteriously these happen. I don't know why I'm sure someone does, but it's not me. I liked your six point two about finding external reminders to to keep your feet moving. And throughout my running career, I, I did this quite often, just uh, photos on uh, blog feeds or Instagrams, and then YouTube. You say go to YouTube and just watch someone start and run and finish a marathon. And I, I use YouTube a lot for motivation because when you Although you say at the end here, if you watch someone fall off a trampoline, you might have the exact opposite effect. You might not want to go out and try that on your own. But watching someone do it and saying, uh, I'm going to go do that now, it's going to get me out the door. I thought that was a great point, these these external uh, factors that can get you rolling with your training. I did yeah. that list of six. It was a, it was a great I'm glad. Thing. Thank you. I, also, like... Um, 
you know, once you get start doing something, you sort of pick up their social media. And the New York Marathon is has a great social media presence. Um, and they themselves pump out these amazing videos, really inspirational and motivational and emotional videos of people crossing the finish line and stories of people that never thought they could do it and did it and stuff. And, and you know, you get swept up in that. Um, so all that stuff, be it cheesy, be it whatever, is actually really helpful. Um, and again, for someone that never even run a marathon, to be able to see what that looks like of people crossing a finish line and you see the accomplishment come across them, um, it's, it's, it's inspiring. And mm-hmm. you're like, I, I wonder if I can do that as well. Sure. And you wonder if, how many energy gels can I down in one marathon? Is that right? These and Well, keep down is the real skill. I mean, they are, I found that to be the worst part of running is these disgusting, Goo toxic, gel. rancid puddings that they package up and you put into your body to keep running. Would you rather try to keep those down or have a tough bout with chafing? Because energy gels and chafing, two uh, reiterated points throughout the book on again what you learn when you start running these long distances what needs to be done and what actually happens almost naturally it it burns it kills but you call it chub rub Uh, yes tell us what the chub rub is and then if you want to i'm sure you don't want to give energy gels any more attention (laughs) well tell us what the chub rub is i'm going to stop saying what an idiot i am because it's got to be clear to anyone listening to this point but i chafing i had no idea i didn't expect it I just smelled like a bad barbecue and looked down and realized that was me that was cooking from like just rubbing together. And, uh, I didn't know the didn't know the answer. Didn't know what to do about it. And of course, you know, I look online and it's products like body glide or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same thing about fueling, I didn't know anything about it and sadly found out it was energy gels, but you know, were I pressed, I would much rather eat a bar of body glide than I would an energy gel. Uh, I don't know what the, the carb load is in body glide, but, uh, yeah, it just, you will chafe horribly. Chub rub is just basically body parts rubbing together. Imagine the worst mm-hmm. and, uh, you need to do something to kind of decrease the friction because it is painful. Um, and I fooled around with different shorts and diff- different ways of wearing my shorts. And, and then, uh, it's not just shorts. Of course, it's your, your sure. shoulders, your arms, your everything. Um, but yeah, you, I found I had to apply some sort of product to kind of stop myself from burning to death. <laughs> As you say, you're an idiot. You're such a novice. Hey, hey. <laughs> I'll tone it down here. Yeah, come uh, on, man. We may be wondering, you had to have some injury setbacks too if you're just getting into it. Um, and you, you talk about how... You, it was a gradual increase in mileage, but we know with more mileage and maybe if you haven't put that on your body before, there could be some tough bouts with maybe plantar fasciitis or uh, maybe it's a, just getting used to running outside and in the dark. You talk about some falls that you had in that, throughout this training. Talk about some of those uh, injuries that may have uh, stunted your, your training. Yeah, I looked at a list of all the ways you can hurt yourself running and said, I want to do all of these. Um, so I definitely got plantar fasciitis bad. Um, I, you know, my smaller injuries, like I toenails were, were flying off my body. Um, the regular kind of aches and pains, the big sort of sharp and troubling injuries were relatively minor, but you don't know that at the time. I turned my ankle um, badly. Uh, a couple times, partly just because I was running when it was pitch black outside and the sidewalk was uneven or I'd hit a 
something in the road, or I was just clumsy. Um, I'd smash my phone, and it always seemed to happen when I was like, you know, I was. I'd say to myself, oh, "I'll run three miles and turn around and run back." And just at that three miles away from my car, that's where I'd always turn my ankle. Boom. And it's like, you know, it's five thirty in the morning. Uh, someone maybe else out there running and just sees this grown man crying in the grass, but there's no one to really call to come help you. So I would just have these long, horrible limps back to my car. And then of course you have three or four or five days, or six days off running mm-hmm. as you hope that your ankle, you know, recovers. And then you start worrying about falling behind in training and, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bad place to be, but it happened to me a couple times and I managed to kind of rise above it both times. You had run pretty soon before an ankle injury, pretty soon before the marathon, correct? You said you, yeah, had, you was, spent an eternity on the ground and may have uh, caught the attention of someone walking by? Yeah, that was uh, I, like uh, maybe even like a week just in like these cool down runs where you're just trying to kind of keep your body in shape but not pushing it too hard. I bl- turned my ankle badly, not too far from my house, and a lady walking her dog, uh, a very sweet lady just rightly so would ask me if I'm okay. But in an increasingly loud voice as I tried to ignore her, hoping she'd just go away because I was so embarrassed as I was lying in the middle of the road in like a tangled heap. <laughs> but she 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 just was so polite and such a good Samaritan. She just would not stop asking me if I was okay. And no matter how much I waved my hand or nodded, she kept asking and asking and asking. And it, it just <laughs> accelerated to her kind of yelling at me, are you Okay as I'm just trying to get this horrible incident over so I can limp home. But uh, she was she only meant well, but she meant it very loudly. Mm-hmm. Her voice increasingly uh, raised bars, as you said, as she kept asking you. Yep. Would, help. would you rather, or what's a better feeling for you? Tapering, you mentioned the cool down runs, you know, getting closer and closer to the marathon. You start your taper regimen and then uh taper or carbo loading what did you uh, most look forward to wow that is my two loves um i i guess i would almost say that wow carbo loading just a license to pig out mm-hmm. uh, thinking that it's part of your training is such a great thing uh i have not stopped carbo loading even four years after the marathon um but tapering was also great because I, again, didn't even know, I didn't look that far in the program that, oh my God, this thing lessens, this thing decreases before right. the race. Oh my God, what a gift. Uh, so uh, just the fact that you've given permission to do less, I would, I'm going to go with carbo load because even yeah. if you're tapering, you're still running um, and sometimes far, you're, you know, you're, you're going down, but you also know you're about to face this monster. But carbo loading is just me sitting in a restaurant shoving spaghetti and garlic breadsticks in my face. And this is training, you know, just going nuts. Not counting calories or anything. Not oh, my God. No, totally, totally. Uh, get up to that race time. You uh, Did you plan on going from L.A. to New York City with your family, your wife and two daughters? And then one of your daughters got sick. Uh, so the family stayed back. Was there intention of all four of you traveling to New York? the marathon yeah i mean it would have been a even had i not run a marathon of course that would be a fun family trip to go to new york city and the the girls were little at the time and uh were excited about it of course um and i thought it would have been really cool it did not turn out that way you know my daughter just got a cold nothing too drastic but just enough Mm -hmm. that it's like 
no one needs to be away from home and in a hotel room with a with a bad cold. So they just stayed home and it became this solitary pursuit for me, which was also fine because there's a lot of stuff to do, you know, get your bib and all that stuff before the race. And the race day itself is kind of a write off. So it, it all turned out fine, but it would have been nice had they been there. And uh, I wish they could have, of course, experienced it with me. But uh, I'd like to say another time, but I don't know that there'll be another time. But anyhow, it was fun. <laughs> I'm going to backtrack a bit on how you gained entry into the marathon New York City Mm -hmm. because yes there are 50,000 plus runners but there's also a lottery system Um, there's not qualifying times like Boston but it's still a tough ticket to get into this race and tell us how you did that you looked up charities and then what transpired from there yeah, I mean, I, I, I was so late, not, I wasn't incredibly late, but I was so late in deciding to do this. I had no idea that you had to sign up way in advance and win a lottery even to get in. So I just basically found out the only way I'm ever going to get in the year that I was kind of into running that much was going to be by this, by donating to a charity. Um, cause that's a way you can get into a lot of these races is hit a fundraising level and they guarantee you a spot in the race. If you, if you raise that much mm-hmm. and like any um, hero, like any charitable hero, I just said, what's the cheapest amount I can give? Um, and I ended up finding this great charity, which I knew nothing about and, and have since kind of stayed a little bit involved with called Shoe for Africa, which builds hospitals and things in Africa. Mm. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting charity. But yeah, so I just, I chose them and, uh, you know, I, I basically just donated. There's a lot of people fundraise. Um, I was lazy even in that effort and i just thought i'm just gonna focus the little energy i have on running and i just wrote a check um for whatever the amount was which i don't call anymore (laughs) but you know it was a donation to a good charity and it also got me into this amazing event so i I don't regret it at all you made it in a great cause and when you got Mm -hmm. to new york you had a couple team meetings you had a brunch and uh, a two-mile run with the team is that right Yes. And, and the one thing I really remember about that brunch, aside from meeting a bunch of great people, which I was friendly with and were a lot of inf- helpful information, it was, I, they had like a, a table with different ways to fuel. And instead of energy gels, for the first time in my life, I realized there are like these chews mm-hmm. that you can use. And I, I was like, oh my God, where have you been? It's like we ran towards each other in slow motion as music played. <laughs> yep. uh, and I, I started the next day, even though I'd never had a chew before, I think I mixed in a lot of chews with the energy gels just because the chews were very tasty and bearable. Um, and it was I, another way I could have fueled the whole time without you know, sucking down sludge. Um, so that, that was what I really took out of that brunch. But uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great team and a, a really good event. Well done. You did take chews during the race then. Oh, yeah. And I just had met them the day before. And I'm like, I don't, you, people say don't mix new things in. I'm like, I don't care. So I took a probably, they, get, they had free ones, which is another great thing. So I probably jammed four packs in my pocket and was just Ooh. pounding chews the whole time. And then that, that two mile run before the race, that was another shock to the system. Hey, we're going to go at a slow pace here. And it ended up being, you know, what you usually go for your training runs right around 10 flat, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, we'll just do a slow shakeout run and, you know, we'll go an easy pace, like 10 minute miles. And I was like, bah, 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 bah. You know, so I just, I'm like running at race pace to keep up with this team on their slow shakeout run. But there was also a guy on my team, I think it's in the book, who uh, another men, another guy on the team had, had heard of him or had run into him because this guy was just happened to be in Washington, D.C. like a week or two before or three weeks before or whatever. And, 
literally the same day just realized, oh, there's a marathon today? Okay, I'll do it. Like he is constantly in good enough shape that he can just go to a marathon the way people go to like Six Flags. Uh, so he was on my team and he ran, I think like a three hour marathon or something, just incredibly fit. Uh, most people were faster than me, of course, but that was a new level that this guy can just, yeah, what am I going to do today? Let me, Oh, instead of this concert or this museum, I'll run a marathon today. So there were people like that on this team with me. Yeah. When you start making that small talk around these races, you just kind of jaw dropped by the incredible feats. Some of these people have done in hundreds of marathons and, um, I know the there's a feat of like seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. They're just wild, wacky marathon records out there. And when you start talking, you just it kind of it can humiliate you and say, "Whoa, if they're doing this, what what am I doing over here?" But we, yeah, I like to tell them my time and everything, and just watch them like look for a way out of the conversation. Oh, oh that's nice. That's that's so cute. Uh, so I like to throw it out that at them the reverse. But anyway. The marathon itself, you you talked about how it was just a well. Some people run with well their their phones and then cameras, and they stop and take photos. It's almost like a tourism race. Uh, you were uh, pleased because you got to see four other boroughs other than Manhattan, and you got to you got to navigate all five of the boroughs during this race. And it starts in Staten Island. Um, talk about that experience of uh, sweating through New York and being able to see these these different. Uh, landmarks and sites that you've read about and heard about sweating through new york is it would be a great album name let's keep that in mind for later uh but anyhow yeah i i you know as many people do uh again realize it as it's happening the marathon is tourism um i had never been to even manhattan there was lots of parts of manhattan i'd never been to Mm -hmm. um and just on top of the experience of running this giant massive organized race with fans lining the street and bands and everything else I, every corner that I would turn would be something new I'd never seen. I'd never been to Harlem. I'd never been to the Bronx or Queens or any of these places. So that was part of what kind of got me going and kept me going is just this idea of like, wow, I'm getting a tour of New York as I, you know, rush towards death. Um, so it was cool. Just, you know, literally eyes open, ears open. And that was, I guess, my distraction. I didn't need the audiobooks or the podcast because I got to see the city that I really didn't know that well um, as I ran through it with all these other people. It was, it was very cool. At mile six, you talked about being inspired by a disabled runner. Can you can you elaborate on that story for us? Yeah, again, and something I didn't know about, but there's a I'm sure these exist everywhere. But in New York, there's a great uh, team, for lack of a better word, called the Achilles Track Club. I think, mm-hmm. and it's people that are disabled in in any different way that still want to run, um, and uh, many of them will run with the help of guides. Um, and I can't speak to what the disability was of this person that I came up to around mile six, but you realize that as whatever shape you're in and whatever time you're in, um, and yes, I was missing toenails and my ankle was the size of a golf, of a a softball. It's like, you've got nothing to complain about when you see somebody that is physically or disabled in some other way. And they're out there running and, and, you know, moving along and, uh, you know, it's very talk about inspiring. That's incredibly inspiring. And sure. uh, I, as I say in the book, I think I didn't complain uh, for the next two blocks just because I was realized how great, you know, amazing this this was. And that so it was cool. And I saw a fair number of these Achilles athletes on the course. And each one is a reminder that people push themselves from much more dire circumstances than I started in. Um, and they do it. And it was it was really inspiring. 
Mm-hmm. Was there any point during the race, this is again the 2013 New York City Marathon, any point where you thought, I might not make it to the finish line? Or you know, there's some yeah. dark times around, I'd say, mile 16, 17, even after mile 20, you know, in training, you never run more than 20 miles. So once sure. you cross that barrier, you're kind of in no man's land or no woman's land. Um, but I... So I'm like, you know, mile 21, 22, I think might be Harlem, which was very cool to see. And people were great. And there's lots of good energy in the air. Mm -hmm. But you're like, I'm not, I still have like four or five miles to go. And I can really feel this. I'm really tired. And it's actually, I believe mile 21 might be uphill as well. So you're just like, it is really a strain. Um, And I guess, you know, I was so close. I could, of course, I couldn't stop there. And you know that like the, to me, what was I had been told Central Park is a really exciting part of the race, and that was coming up, and then of course the finish. So it just I kept myself going. Um, I'm sure my time flagged a little bit at that point, but yeah, if I I'd say around mile 21, heading uphill, I think it's in Manhattan. That's when you start to wonder, can I actually do this? The mental breakthrough you need it there. Yeah, you took a couple aspirins around mile 16. Yeah, I, I would say that's one of my proudest moments. Uh, and I really don't know how I would have been able to finish had I not, because I wasn't yet, my legs weren't really in pain um, at 16. But, you know, those aspirins bought me like another two hours of, of not realizing that my legs were in pain. Um, and there was a lot of hills and bridges and stuff coming up. So they just were a wise decision in retrospect that kept me moving. And I'm sure around mile 21 would have been so much harder had I not kind of numbed the pain a little bit. And you mentioned earlier you ran for a shoe for Africa. That's how you uh, gained entry into the race. And another humorous story, the countless that are throughout this book, at the race in New York City, one lady called out to you. She said, you got this Africa because you had (laughs) Africa on your bib. Well, like, you know, people, again, uh, people write their names on their shirts. Sure. Uh, So people will call, fans will say, go Chuck or Sally or Karen or whatever, you got this. (laughs) And I didn't do that. Uh, I just, I didn't think of it. I didn't have a pen. I didn't even really realize it. But my shirt very proudly said Shoe for Africa, the mm-hmm. logo of this charity. So this lady, again, incredibly well-meaning, just wanting to push me on and saw how tired I was and how sore I was. She just leaned out and just yelled in my face, this white Jewish guy from Canada, you got this Africa, <laughs> which I thought it would be a very odd thing to happen anywhere except in that circumstance. But uh Thank you to that random, confused woman. The aspirin and that woman, they deserve the thanks. <laughs> I wish I could share my medal with them. <laughs> What's the best sign you saw? Either New York City, Chicago, um, L.A. I know you ran about 12 miles of the L.A. Marathon. We can talk about that for a minute a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but best signs, I know you mentioned a few of them in the book and. um yeah, the signs are great. Uh, that my only complaint would be, of course, they repeat themselves, so they become less great. I mean, the first time I saw one that said, "If it was easy, it would be your mother," uh, I thought it was very funny. Uh, there's ones like "Run fast," the Kenyans are drinking all the beer. I mean, oh, yes. they're they're all not only great distraction, but a lot of them are very funny. Uh, and then, of course, you see them 17 more times, and you're like, Ugh. Uh, but the first time I saw any of them, I would say it was great, uh, very fun. Uh, just that I, my complaint would be I saw them all so many times that they kind of got tiresome. So if you have a great sign or you want to use an existing sign, go to the start of the race to get full appreciation. <laughs> you finish in 42603, 2013 New York City Marathon. Are you thinking about Oprah pretty soon after crossing the line? 
I was looking around for her, trying to find her, see if she was there to, but you know, like a coward, she didn't even show up. Um, so I, no, I, I was proud of myself cause I, I had cracked the time I wanted to, to crack. And, uh, she is a footnote in history. I'm sure no one will speak of her again and only speak of me, but no, I, I was, I was just really, that was my goal. And, and sort of for once in my life, I had actually accomplished a goal. So it was pretty exciting. I love the part uh, around page 160 in the book when you when you talk about uh, like you you go after the running purists and how you you read so many online forums if uh, you're not faster than four hours like it doesn't count it doesn't amount to anything and and you just talked about how accomplishing this incredible feat from an out of shape slob that you call yourself to the slightly out of shape slob but you did it you you finished in under 4:30 and you. You just give this speech really to the purists and uh, I want to read part of it here and then you can chime in after. You say, um, the, the elitist, this elitist view of running suggests that no one should ever do anything unless they can do it at the highest level. Do these purists believe that they should be allowed to run their three-hour marathons when elite athletes are running them in two hours? Who is setting the bar where acceptable lives? What about other sports? Uh, should someone be able to play golf even if they can't break 100 and you you go on for about a page or two here and just say hey we can congratulate anyone who this could be a lifelong goal they could finish in six hours and 20 minutes but you can still it's not about the time it's just about shaking a hand giving a high five and saying you did it i'm proud of you yeah i mean that's uh it's fun yeah, a lot of people have sort of found that part of the book to be one of the, I'd say, best parts, dare I say that. But uh, I, I didn't know what a good pace was. And good, of course, is a relative term. But if you go to the Internet and look up what is a good time for a marathon, there's a lot of people out there who are weighing in about anything under four hours is good. And people are actually mad at Oprah um, because they, she has kind of, in a way, made it OK to run these marathons they can deem <laughs> as slow as four hours and 30 minutes. And I kind of called the whole term pacism um, yes. because it, it, it's there's this whole world out there of, of runners or people that take it very seriously. And I don't bother them for that, but a lot of judgment. And I sort of was making the point that uh, good for them, do your thing, but don't impose judgment on people that are just trying to accomplish this thing. And I even suggest like, in a way, it's it's almost more impressive if somebody that never even thought they could do something, go ahead and do it as opposed to somebody do something they've done before just a little bit better. Um, so I was trying to make the case for people like myself and, and other beginners, uh, you know, don't get hung up by these ideas of what is good and what is bad. What is good is, is accomplishing your goal, whatever time it takes you. Um, and, and there's try to sort of ignore this elite and thankfully small group of people that are very judgmental and, and mm. sort of snobby about running. Sure. And you, you said the next day after the marathon, you, you limped around the city. A lot of people probably wear the medals around their necks. And you thought it was cool that um, in the small talk, if someone said congratulations or um, way to go, they didn't say, you know, what was your time? And that ties right into that mantra you were giving. Yeah. And that's, I, again, I didn't know people wore their medals around their necks and I saw people and I thought that was super cool. I left mine back at the hotel as I was moving at a mile an hour. Uh, but yeah, I just, that's like, you know, you, you, people find out you run a marathon and I, it is a long time to people say, Oh, what time did you run it? They're just like, yeah. Oh my God, that's so cool. That's so amazing. Cause people don't think about the time. They just think about the challenge and the accomplishment and time is, 
you, is a deep question that no one really cares about. So, uh, you know, I, I came to recognize that as, as, as proof that the, the accomplishment is much bigger than the time. Sure. And then recovery from that first marathon, did you take, how, how many, how many days did you take off? What was the, uh, uh, I think I had read that you're not supposed to run for two weeks and I was like, Hey, I'll go one better. I'll go three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I probably didn't run for probably two or three weeks and then I would just dabble with like some three milers and four milers. And then of course I set my sights on the Chicago marathon. So I started to pick it up more in the program. Um, but yeah, I just, I really took a couple weeks off and I needed it a little bit. I mean, my, for the first, I'd say four or five days, my legs were really sore. Uh, then they were fine, but I, you know, it's good to take a little bit of time off, obviously let your body recover because it is a, a strain on the body. Mm-hmm. And I took two or three weeks off before I started again. And then you, you say you ran 12 ish miles of the LA marathon in 2015. I read somewhere that you uh, took an Uber back. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was in pain a little bit. Uh, I had suffered minor injuries, I'd suppose, in the Chicago Marathon, and they never really got a lot better. Okay. So I, you know, four months later, I was like, I'll do L.A. And I knew I wasn't going to finish. And I, I've run all over L.A. during my training, but I'd never really run this first part of the marathon, which leaves Dodger Stadium and heads back towards the ocean. So I, I did that and I, you know, I did my 12 miles or whatever. And then I realized, all right, I've, I've done 12 miles. I now know where I am. I've run all over parts of West Hollywood and I'm just like, I'm good. So I just turned left and and cut through the crowd and called an Uber and I got home in record time. That was probably my best time that race. (laughs) How were you greeted after your first marathon when you went back to work riding with the Simpsons, your colleagues, you said you received a standing ovation. Talk about that moment. It it was cool. I mean, everyone had kind of known. I they could see that I was losing weight, of course, um, and getting more fit. So they knew I was running a lot, and they knew I was running the marathon. But just like to me, to them, it was an oddity, and they didn't know anything about it. And to them, like to myself, they were very sort of proud and and impressed that I had finished. Um, so when I walked back in the room, it was very nice, very touching. Uh, these jerks who uh, I eat potato chips with all day you know, gave me a nice standing ovation. And then of course the next question was like, you know, did, did you wet yourself? Did you, you know, yeah. foul yourself in some other way? And all the questions you'd expect from three-year-olds. Uh, but for a minute there, it was very sweet. This writing with the Simpsons, uh, you went to college at university of Alberta mm-hmm. and did not major, did not focus on anything specifically with writing, correct? Yes. I have two degrees, one in biology and a business degree that I waste every day. And how the heck do you get on the Simpsons panel writing? Uh, it's a long sort of yeah. twisted story, but basically I, I just, I had a, a job. I worked in a business for this film distribution company. I was you know, vice president, blah, blah, blah. And I moved to LA for a job with Turner, which I was a big job and I just didn't enjoy it. And I thought, well, maybe I can try writing. Uh, my brother is a writer and he was helpful in introducing me to some people amongst them, Kathy Griffin, the really hilarious comedian. Mm. And then I started working with her and I got on the show she was on, which was called Suddenly Susan, uh, which people hopefully have forgotten. And then uh, from there I got on The Simpsons and I've been there for 17 years. And your older brother, Robert, mm-hmm. he wrote for yes. The Simpsons too? Was He, he uh, wrote one episode, yeah, a long one time episode. ago. One episode. Yeah, but a famous one, Flaming Mo episode, if anyone knows that episode. Sure. Sure. And you're on to, you're 28 episodes in. You say you got a couple more in production right now? Correct. Uh, the process of an episode, you have the you have the animators, you have 
the voice cast, the writing team, producers. How long does it take to put together one episode of The Simpsons? I mean, from the moment that our cast first reads it aloud till it's on TV, the fastest it'll be is nine months. Um, but depending on scheduling and stuff, it can sometimes be a, even a year, a year and a half. Uh, but the fastest it'll ever be is nine months. So like whatever, what are we in September 1st? We are working right now. Uh, the actors haven't read it yet, but we're working on the Halloween script for next Halloween for Halloween 2018. It's pretty much written. We just haven't had our actors read it yet. That'll happen in a few weeks. Cool. Yeah. You worked on the Simpsons movie too? Uh, a little bit. Just okay. I, we had a, a little room of people that were just like raining down jokes in a few spots, and I was one of four people that did that. Awesome. Twenty-eight seasons total of The Simpsons, longest-running American animation show. Yeah. And season twenty-nine starts October first. There so it's it is. All happening. Yeah. Good deal. Um, I know you were asked this by a Canadian running magazine about who would be which Simpson character would be the best at marathoning. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take that but run with it in terms of training partner just knowing the personality of these characters um and you talked about maybe if you would do something different with training you maybe join a team you might get a training partner uh let's go into animation here with the simpsons and say who do you think would be the best training partner and who would be the worst training partner that you'd have to get up with every morning to run with uh it's i think it's i mean marge is very diligent uh and she would actually be responsible and, and take a t- take uh, make sure that we actually completed all the runs and get me up in the morning and probably make me breakfast. So that'd be great. Mm-hmm. So Marge would be the best one to run with. And then of course, opposite would be Homer who, you know, you need a forklift to get him out of bed. He may actually run slower than me, which would be something. Um, and then of course we'd end up eating Philly G steak somewhere uh, <laughs> after like a half mile. So uh, Marge the best, Homer the worst. You say that riding room with the Simpsons is not conducive to uh, reaching a, a, a 26.2 mile goal. There's a lot of sitting. There's plenty of snacks to go around. Um, was, was that part of the influence in, in getting into running while you were also reading Chris McDougall's Born to Run? Uh, no, I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, I wasn't trying to get away from that lifestyle because I'm so good at eating snacks and sitting. You wouldn't believe it. But uh, it was nice to be able to uh, to do something like that while my job sort of sometimes is, is not the best lifestyle for something like that. That said, uh, you know, I think people are generally hopefully getting more fit and you see it in the writer's room too. I mean, we still eat snacks, but people exercise almost every day and, and try all sorts of stuff to stay fit. So it's not bad in that sense. Sure. I have a couple quick hitters, uh, mm-hmm. questions here. Um, we'll get into it right now. You mentioned body glide earlier, the anti-chafing, cream uh is it true you got a gift basket from body glide after they read your book i again it's sort of like Runkeeper. i was surprised and thrilled that they uh first of all that anyone read my book uh but yeah so they sent me a nice gift basket and actually um next week i'm doing like a little fun uh, online instagram cross promotion with them where sweet uh, i'm sort of doing a day in the life of a runner and a writer um with some body glide mixed in um, <laughs> and it will appear on both their their instagram feed and mine Good deal. Would you rather win another Emmy, take home another Emmy, or beat Will Ferrell's marathon time of 356 from the 03 Boston Marathon? I would much rather, if, 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 if I was able to run sub four hours, I would take that over an Emmy. Um, I, the, the, the thing I even talk about in the book is 
I've I've been incredibly lucky that I have even won a couple Emmys, but it's it's always a group effort and very collaborative. The thing about running that is so great is if you if you do do it in any way and any accomplishment you make, you know, is completely solely yours. Um, so it's nice to be able to do something that nobody could even help you with. Um, it's just a matter of getting out there and doing it. So it'd feel like it's such a, such a bigger accomplishment if I was able to do something new in running. Um, I, and of course I'd love to win an Emmy, but it would definitely be a group effort if it ever happened. Sure. Are you able to plug which running shoe is your favorite? What's your go-to? Can you give us the company name or can you just say what you love about the shoe? I was a running shoe whore. I tried almost a, a many different brands. I ran one race in Brooks. I couldn't even tell you the exact model. I ran, I think, one in an Asics. Um, and these days I'm running in Nikes. Um, so it's not like I'm loyal. I just, I have a, there's a really good running store near my house called Front Runners. And the people there are great. And I go there and I just say, you know, these are my problems. This is where my foot hurts. And they're really good about analyzing your foot and saying, this is the best type of shoe, and I don't really care about the brand. And I've also learned not to care about how ugly they are, because most running shoes are hideously ugly. So I'm just like, if this is the best shoe for me to run in, then great. And it, sometimes it turns out to be a Nike, sometimes a Brooks, whatever. I just take what it, whatever is the best. Absolutely. I'm going to have you project here into the future a little bit. Oh, uh, boy. Which, which of your daughters is most likely to run a marathon, and why? Uh... You know, I would I would say my younger daughter has has this more of this. Uh, they're both have their their skills. A father has to say that, uh, but they're both driven in different ways. But my younger daughter is very uh, accomplishment focused. But as much as I say that, my older daughter, uh, I was telling her the other day that the Berlin Marathon, I believe, has a thing where you can inline skate it the day before. Ooh. And I thought that would be kind of fun. And she's like, "I'll do that with you." So I'm like, "You're on." Because I really think that you, you know, with a moderate level of fitness, you can kind of inline skate the 26 miles. Even if you stop a little bit, who cares? Sure. So between her and I right now, uh, the plan is that we are going to do next September. I think it's in September. We are going to inline skate the uh, Berlin Marathon. So that might be the, the, the one that runs it first or does one first, skates one first. We would love to get a follow-up report on that inline skate. Uh, sure. Like that. Let's check in next year. Or the sequel. Like, read about me in a hospital in Berlin. You'll know what's <laughs> happening. Next one is we uh, we know you get reviews online for your books. Do mm-hmm. you admittedly read these reviews, these star reviews? Do you check them out? A hundred percent. A yeah. thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm interested to know what people think, and it's – uh, you know, even writing on the Simpsons, there are reviews of your episodes, but you just, I think as a human, people just crave feedback to some extent. And I, you know, you put up this book and you have no idea, is this something people like, something people hate? And luckily I'd say, I'd say 85, 90% of the reviews are positive. Um, there are a couple that are less positive, but I can take those and understand those as well. Uh, you know, when you do something humorous and I tried to, it's not going to appeal to everybody because people have different senses of humor. Sure. But uh, the thing I've taken the most joy out of is uh, I, people are sort of talking about the book as being motivational and inspirational. Um, and I don't know that I intended to do that, but I, if I in any way was able to motivate or inspire somebody, that's a great uh, compliment. Um, and I've seen that in some reviews. So it's been very almost rewarding to read the reviews as opposed to something scary. Mm-hmm. I meant to ask you this way uh 
more earlier in the conversation, but the, illu- the illustrations in the book, your stick drawings. Uh, I also read that your agent, you, you gave her a copy, uh, him or her, a copy of her, the, yes. her, a copy of the, the your book, and it was 20,000 words. She wanted it to be 40,000, but then there's this way you can integrate drawings and illustrations into your book to, to make it qualify as a as a book. A forty thousand word book. So then you start doing these stick drawings, uh, and I love. I mean, they work so well with the the tone of the book, and you, you depict yourself as. Um, I mean, it's. I don't know how long each drawing took, but uh, like ten seconds. Yeah, these illustrations. Uh, no. Talk about uh, what went into that and why. Yeah, just. I mean, very quickly, as you said, I. Yeah. I, I didn't know how long a book was, just like a marathon. I'm, I'm an idiot in more than just running. I'm an idiot in many different facets of my life. So I uh, had this thing, and I talked to a book agent um, who I said, hey, I have this thing. And she's like, this is great, but it's 20,000 words, and you're only halfway done. You need to, It has to be 40 to sell it. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't write another 20,000 words. So then she's like, yeah, if you, if you flesh it out with drawings, you can probably – sell it at 20,000 with drawings. And then we ended up selling it to Abrams, the publisher. Yeah. But as soon as they got it, they go, oh, this is great. You still need another 15,000 words. And I'm like, but the drawings, the drawings, the drawings. <laughs> and anyhow, I did end up adding some extra stuff. I think the final product is about 32,000 words. Okay. But there are these, calling them drawings is an insult to the skill of drawing. They're the, the, even Stickman is, is high praise. Uh, they're just very crappy, low-level drawings uh, that I just tried to either illustrate or be, add something sort of funny visually to the book. So I think there's about 75, maybe 80 of them peppered throughout the book, um, and they are spectacular. <laughs> you mentioned Born to Run as one of the main culprits in getting you to run. I see there's a review by Chris McDougal online. Have you met Chris? The author of I have not. Okay. Uh, one of my good friends and colleagues at The Simpsons, a guy named Rob Lezebnik, great writer, and his wife, Claire Lezebnik, is also a phenomenal writer. People like uh, want to look for some extra books. Um, and she, uh, I guess, knows Chris McDougall from Harvard, maybe, I think, or some writing group they were in. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, Rob was kind enough to say, listen, I can reach out to him if you want um, and see if he'll write a blurb and he could not have been nicer and cooler. And for me, it was a chance to meet a hero because I really did love all his book and all his books. Um, so I talked to him on the, I don't know if we even talked on the phone. I think we literally just exchanged emails. Uh, and he was very funny as well. So we had a, we had a series of about 10 or 15 emails, uh, both of us insulting myself. And then he gave me this little blurb, which I'm thrilled for. Great. You wrote uh, episode 17 of this past season of The Simpsons, season 28, uh, titled 22 for 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, guest appearance by, you know, cameo by Stephen Curry. Were you able to meet Steph? I did not meet him. Okay. Uh, he just has one or two lines. Uh, yeah. And no, I never met him. It happens sometimes with uh, guest cast that either someone will fly up somewhere, like uh, Tom Brady's example, a guy flew up to, to Boston to record him there. Okay. Uh, but Steph Curry, I can't even remember if he was on the phone, which happens sometimes, or he came in without anyone knowing it. Uh, I know, anyway, bottom line, I didn't meet him. Yeah. Um, and that happens a fair bit. One of your favorite episodes you've ever written, that one, 22 for 30? Yeah, that's up there. It's a parody of kind of the ESPN 30 for 30s. Right. And the premise is that Bart is shaving points on his uh, elementary school basketball team for the mafia to bet on them. 
Um, and it's, I think it's, it turned out really well and really fun. And I actually was lucky enough to meet the guys that did the actual ESPN 30 for 30 that's kind of loosely based on. And they were very complimentary and nice as well. So it's sometimes these things spin off to be nice adventures. Absolutely. It's How to Lose a Marathon by Joel H. Cohen. How to Lose a Marathon, a starter's guide to finishing in 26.2 chapters. Joel, where can we get the book? Let us know. Uh, I mean, it's obviously available online, and uh, people may have heard of an online bookstore called Amazon. But it's also hopefully in a lot of local bookstores, which I'd love to support a local bookstore if I can. But uh, if you're lazy like me, uh, you will just click on your computer a few times and it'll be at your door tomorrow uh, or the next day. But it's, it's definitely online everywhere. Books are sold and hopefully in a lot of bookstores as well. Any social media to plug for you? Sure. Yeah. I mentioned earlier this Twitter feed called, uh, pardon me, Twitter feed is at Lose a Marathon, but Instagram is where I do most of the stuff because okay. it's fun to put pictures up and that's called How to Lose a Marathon. Um, right now I'm four days deep into uh, a seven day analysis of the C Dick run, C Jane run, 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 run picture. So <laughs> people can check that out. Awesome. Any yeah. races on the horizon for you, Joel? Anything you're training for at the moment? Uh, I'm doing, it's not a race, but we have tried a thing at the Simpsons, which we're trying again and actually starting today being September 1st, which is over the course of the month, we try to cumulatively finish a triathlon. So that includes a 26.2 mile run, you know, a a 2.4 mile swim and a 112 mile, um, cycling, which is, I always find the hardest. So, uh, I'm sure being at September 1st, everyone else I work with is out running or swimming or cycling. And I'm here talking to you. So you've already put me behind. Thank you. You're greatly welcome. (laughs) How to Lose a Marathon, a starter's guide to finishing in 26.2 chapters. Joel H. Cohen, writer and producer for The Simpsons. He's now uh, a marathoner, even though he doesn't want to call himself a runner. But Joel, I really appreciate the time this morning. Just beyond an hour. We appreciate it here at the podcast. Thank you for your time. And... We'll be keeping an eye out for that follow-up book and also uh, if you make it through that Berlin skating marathon. All right. Spoiler alert, I won't. But uh, thank you very much. It was great doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joel. All right, man. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Hooray Run Podcast Episode 9 with Joel H. Cohen. Many thanks to Joel for carving time out of his schedule for the podcast. Simpsons writer, book author, father of two. That's hectic. I appreciate the time, Joel. I want to cover a few more things from the book that I did not quite get to with Joel in the conversation. One was chapter 22. He talks about the Marathon Expo in New York City. And if you've ever run a road race of any distance, really, you know what the Expo is. And Joel talks about it as this sort of trap. And chapter 22 of the book is titled Survive the Expo. And here's a quick paragraph from that chapter. Joel writes, Once you are at the expo, you will quickly see that you have been lured into a trap. You have been drawn deep into a makeshift bazaar where tracksuit-wearing vendors hawk souvenirs, shoes, and everything else. Just like every other experience in America, the marathon has a gift shop, and this is it. Chapter 22 of How to Lose a Marathon on Expos. Also, Joel details his rest the night before the marathon. And again, if you've run a race, you know that night before, nerves are going, your mind's racing, brutal night of sleep, and Joel writes it 
so well and it's super relatable. And also at the end of the book, he calls it the most boring appendix ever written. But I found it to be a great addition to the book. He he graphs some of his training runs uh, leading up to the New York City Marathon. And that's in the appendix. Again, what he calls the, the most boring appendix ever written. Just a few more things I wanted to cover from the book. Also, this talk would not have happened without the help of Stacy Caspin who was integral in setting up the interview. Thank you, Stacy. How to Lose a Marathon. Go to Amazon in the search bar, put How to Lose a Marathon, bingo, there it is. Please check it out. Joel H. Cohen, How to Lose a Marathon, A Starter's Guide to Finishing in 26.2 Chapters. Hooray Run on social media, Facebook page, Twitter is at hooray underscore run. Instagram, again, I hope to get that run in here soon. Hoorayrun.com. The podcast, Hooray Run Podcast. It's on SoundCloud. It's on iTunes. The podcast app on your phone. Just search Hooray Run Podcast. There it is. It's on Stitcher. Tell a friend. Recommend. Email the podcast. Podcast at hoorayrun.com. Thanks to my friend Matthias, a.k.a. Hopeful Utopian, for the music I used at the start of this episode. It's John Henry by Hopeful Utopian. And as always, thanks to my friend Mikey, a.k.a. Meeks Palmer on SoundCloud, for the intro-outro beats. Episode 9, now online, 